Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, South Africa to launch a bid for a seat at the UN Security Council and UN Commission on Women Status kicks off its annual session. In economics news, Zimbabwe gives mines and farmers six months to clear electricity bills. And in sports news, South Africa expected to top medals table at the Commonwealth Games. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Sierra Leone's Electoral Commission is to recount votes from about a further 70 polling stations amid allegations of irregularities. In a press release, it says of the earlier 82 polling stations whose votes have so far been recounted, there have been no cancellations of results. The country is still waiting for 25% of votes cast in the presidential race. On Sunday, when the Electoral Commission released 75% of official figures. The main opposition, Sierra Leone's People's Party, was leading the ruling All-People's Congress. Exiled Congolese opposition leader Moise Katumbi has launched a campaign to be elected president in polls scheduled for December, unveiling his new Together for Change party in South Africa. Katumbi's new grouping received the backing of more than a dozen small opposition parties, which had sent delegates to the gathering. The Democratic Republic of Congo's election was originally scheduled for late 2016, but has been twice delayed, leading to unrest. President Joseph Kabila has not yet clearly stated whether he will step aside. A team of Southern African Development Community SADC election observers have met Zimbabwean Foreign Minister, Affairs Minister Sibisi Somoyo as it began its week-long assessment mission ahead of polls set for mid-year. The team is expected to meet government officials, the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, political parties and civil society, among other stakeholders. The visit by the observers is in line with the regional bloc's principles and guidelines governing conduct of democratic elections. President Emerson Mnangagwa has not yet proclaimed election dates, but according to the law, these are expected to be held between the 21st of July and the 21st of August. The United States has drafted a new UN Security Council resolution demanding a 30-day ceasefire in Syria. The U.S. Ambassador Nikki Haley said Russia has failed to ensure that a previous ceasefire resolution passed two weeks ago was implemented and continued its bombing in eastern Ghouta. Haley says the U.S. is prepared to act alone in response to any further chemical attacks in Syria. We support the United Nations political process that seeks to end the war in Syria. But we also warn any nation that is determined to impose its will through chemical attacks and inhuman suffering, most especially the outlaw Syrian regime, 
the United States remains prepared to act if we must. Issam Zaytoum, a Syrian who fled his country in the 1990s, is in South Africa as he appeals for more international intervention in the war in his country. Zaytoum, who now lives in Germany, says BRICS countries and other countries of the world are turning a blind eye to the suffering in Syria. Of course, South Africa is an important country because it's a, a member of BRICS, uh, how to call it, BRICS countries of unity. And uh, this BRICS is, is supporting Assad, uh, you know, uh, very tightly. And uh, recently we have seen that South Africa uh, voted against the resolution in the UN uh, Human Rights Council. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It is 8.05 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. South Africa is expected to launch a bid for a rotational seat at the United Nations Security Council before the end of March. The country has been endorsed by the African Union during its January summit. This will be the third time South Africa sits on the UN Security Council since 1994. Ntakonangatan reports. Mexican President of the Republic of South Africa and to invite him to address the Assembly. Your Excellency President of the General Assembly. This is former President Thabo Mbeki addressing the United Nations General Assembly. The United Nations Charter established six main organs of the UN and the Security Council is one of them. The core responsibility of the Security Council is to maintain international peace and security and it meets whenever peace is threatened. While other organs of the United Nations make recommendations to member states Only the Security Council has the power to make decisions that member states are then obliged to implement under the Charter. There are five permanent members of the Security Council, being China, France, Russia, the United Kingdom and the United States of America. No African country is a permanent member and the continent wants the rules to be reconstituted to give other countries a seat at the table. Africa wants two permanent seats, but for now, their rotational seats are the continent's only means of representation. In June, countries will vote for those rotational seats. There are some matters about which we all of us agree. South Africa sat in the Security Council from 2007 to 2008 during former President Abombeki's tenure, and from 2011 to 2012 during former President Jacob Zuma's tenure. It remains unrepresentative and undemocratic in both its composition and decision-making. And now it wants to sit for the third time. David Monai is an analyst. Uh, This is excellent uh, news that the AU has confidence in South Africa. Um, However, this should not be taken for granted. South Africa has to do much more groundwork with the new president who I have no doubt that he has the capacity and he will hit the ground running. However, uh, when it comes to the capacity at the government level, there's more work um, that needs to be done, uh, as well as going beyond the um, AU itself. I think South Africa 
uh, gets involved in a number of uh, multilateral institutions. I think it's a question of taking advantage of those uh, institutions. President Cyril Ramaphosa is expected to spearhead the campaign. Among his accolades, mediating in Lesotho as SADC facilitator. The government of Lesotho, composed of the coalition, uh, is determined to move ahead with uh, the holding of a multi-party stakeholder dialogue. He has also been to Ireland, Sudan and Kenya and it wasn't all smooth sailing. No, I do not I do not do business with uh, Raila Odinga, no. nor did I financially or otherwise support his campaign and his role at the Quadessa negotiations for South Africa's new democracy and its hurdles will also come in handy. Well, I think uh, as uh, uh, Mr. Mandela said at a press conference yesterday that uh, this matter is now behind us, the, the altercation between himself and President de Klerk is behind us, we're moving on, Codessa uh, is still on course. He is no stranger to the United Nations. Since 2005, he is one of the commissioners of the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, ICISS. Under its central theme, the responsibility to protect, the commission ensures the primary responsibility of sovereign states to protect their own citizens from avoidable catastrophe. But when states are unwilling or unable to do so, that responsibility must be borne by the broader community of states. The authority to employ the use of force under the framework of the responsibility to protect rests solely with the United Nations Security Council and is considered a measure of last resort. President Ramaphosa is expected to use the AU Special Summit in Rwanda to lobby Africa in the Commonwealth meeting in the United Kingdom. Among issues the Security Council is currently seized with, the Korea Peninsula, the standoff between North Korea and the United States, and the Middle East and Syria in particular, as well as the continent. David Munai. Africa, Africa and Africa. I think... Um, President Ramaphosa uh, ought to uh, avoid being all over the world and uh, uh, ensure that with the limited resources, uh, South Africa sticks to more African issues, but at the same time uh, able to work with bigger powers and ensure that they support um, South Africa's position, uh, that is to strengthen Africa's institutions of governance, particularly the African Union, how it engages uh, powerful countries such as China uh, uh, and the European Union. International Relations Minister Lindy Wesusulu is expected to launch the bid in New York before the end of this month. I'm Takwanangatani in Johannesburg. Progress for women and girls means changing the unequal power dynamics that underpin discrimination and violence. That was the message of the United Nations Secretary General at the opening of the 62nd session of the Commission of Status of Women that is focused on achieving gender equality and the empowerment of rural women and girls. Thousands of delegates representing a cross-section of government and civil society were also reminded that at the current rates of implementation, it will take over 200 years to achieve parity. Sharon Bryce-Peace reports from New York. It's an annual pilgrimage for thousands of delegates to New York, with a focus squarely on ensuring that rural women are not left behind in the implementation of the Sustainable Development Goals. Secretary-General Antonio Guterres. 
Progress for women and girls means changing the unequal power dynamics and underpinning discrimination and violence. This is not the only greatest human rights challenge of our time. It is also in everyone's interest. Discrimination against women damages communities, organizations, companies, economies and societies. This is why all men should support women's rights and gender equality. Worldwide, one-third of women are employed in agriculture, making up 60% of the workforce. They are often treated as informal sector workers with little or no social protections. Globally, just 13% of women own the land they work, while 20% of rural women have access to clean drinking water, compared to 68% of their urban counterparts. UN Women's Executive Director Pumzilem Lambunguka explained that half of all rural women have no basic literacy in developing countries. The world eats every day because they toil. Across the world, millions of women and girls in rural areas provide unpaid care in their homes, nurturing their families, but losing opportunities for their own growth. This commission hopes to change that. With warnings here that already the world has slowed in its implementation of the SDGs. It has never been so urgent to hold ourselves, to hold leaders accountable to their promise of accelerating progress. Today, as we open this year's commission, we should use this forum as the most timely opportunity to secure and accelerate the much-needed progress build a consensus and share the best practice that allows the Commission to serve the poorest of the poor with agency and maximum accountability to those who need it most. This is a tipping point moment. It is a time to take action that responds to the size of the problem faced by women who live in the rural areas. South Africa's delegation is led by Women's Minister Batabile Dlamini, who's expected to address the commission on Tuesday. I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pease in New York. It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now let's go back in time to today in 1983. A leader of Zimbabwe's opposition party Zapu, Joshua Ngomo, fled in self-imposed exile to London after illegally crossing the Botswana frontier, claiming that his life was in danger and that he was going to look for solutions to Zimbabwean problems abroad. That's today in history in the year 19. 1983. The Syrian army and rebel groups were reportedly engaged in fierce battles on Sunday in eastern Ghouta, where fighting has killed more than a thousand civilians over the past 21 days. The army has made significant advances on the biggest rebel stronghold near Damascus. Rebels, however, refused to surrender and vowed to fight on in an attempt to topple President Bashar al-Assad, Issam Zaytun, an independent Syrian opposition figure and researcher, is calling for international intervention to the raging Syrian war to ensure freedom and dignity for civilians. Jane Rabutata reports. 
Armed opposition groups have been in control in eastern Ghouta since 2013, two years into a popular uprising in Syria calling for the removal of President Bashar Assad. However, with the intervention of Russia in 2015, Assad's forces have managed to regain most of the rebel-held territory, but eastern Ghouta remains one of the last armed opposition strongholds. Assad and his ally Russia see the rebels as terrorist groups and say their offensive is needed to end the rebels' rule over eastern Ghouta's large population. The violence of the assault has been condemned widely, with repeated calls from global aid agencies for a humanitarian ceasefire in the besieged area. An independent Syrian opposition figure and researcher Issam Zaydom describes the immense loss caused by the ongoing fighting in Syria. Imagine that 12 million Syrians lost their homes. Six or seven or maybe more left the country and the other left to other places. Cities like Homs, 1.2 inhabitants, now it's empty. There's only about 80 to 100,000 Alawite. They came also after 1960s. They are not original from Homs. But Homs, the city of Homs since 2011, it's empty, evacuated completely. And now it's doing the same thing in Ruta, the same thing in, 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 in Al-Haramon, the, the Kalamon mountain from Kusir on the border, along the border to Lebanon. It's all under Hezbollah uh, control. Although some say Assad is far from gaining control over the entire country, Zaytoum believes he is about to win the war and says the role of the international community is critical to stop human suffering and help rebuild the country. The problem is when Bashar al-Assad win this war and he is about to, what the international community is going to do with that? So the entire credibility uh, of the international community is uh, now, you know, um, vibrated in the, in the Syrian or the Arab or the Muslim. Everyone in the world is looking to Syria and can do nothing. I think that, that we need to make uh, concessions to get the Syrian crisis solved. We need concerted efforts from the international community, especially from the neighboring countries. Syria must be put, of course, divided under uh, an international custody because the issues we have to deal with after the war end is much bigger than our capacities. It's unbelievable how, with how many uh, issues we have to deal and we need, uh, of course, international support and help in all aspects. That's Issam Zaytoum, an independent Syrian opposition figure and researcher. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. Let us all unite and celebrate this is indeed a joyous night. We are delighted by the overwhelming support for the African National Congress. To the people of South Africa and the world, this is indeed a joyous night for the human spirit. You help and apart. This year, 2018, marks 100 years since the birth of South Africa's first democratically elected president, Nelson Kholisasa Mandela. Join Channel Africa, South Africa's international public service radio station, as we celebrate a centenary of the life and times of Madiba. Join us in a year-long broadcast campaign in honor of Nelson Mandela's legacy through a variety of informative radio programs. Channel Africa, celebrating 100 years of Nelson Mandela from an African perspective. Let us make Africa the dream.
It's 8.19 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The new African National Congress leadership in South Africa has resolved to work with the party stalwarts and veterans to restore unity within the party. President Cyril Ramaphosa and his deputy David Mabuza met the group in Johannesburg yesterday. These ANC members have in the past called for a consultative conference without success, But with the election of the new leadership, their much-anticipated gathering to deal with the problems facing the organization could be in the offing soon. Ndebo Mokobo reports. After meeting President Cyril Ramaphosa and his deputy David Mabuza on Monday, the ANC stalwarts and veterans say they want to participate in the renewal and restoration of the dignity of their organization. These are members who have been with the organization for 50 years and more. President Ramaphosa says they had a fruitful engagement, insisting that they are fortunate to have the backing of the veterans and stalwarts. Our stalwarts are custodians. They are the guardians also of the values of our movement. They've contributed greatly to the growth and the development of our movement. And they have a place of pride in the life of the ANC. So we are a very fortunate organization in that we have so many stalwarts who are concerned about the movement. The stalwarts were concerned about the direction of their movement. So we are fortunate as the leadership of the ANC elected at Nasrek that we have this group of men and women who have sacrificed so much. But it was not like this. Early last year, the group had called for a consultative conference to deal with the problems facing the ANC. This resulted in a stalemate with then-ANC leadership insisting such a conference form part of the June policy conference, which was then rejected by the group. The veterans were also extremely unhappy with former president Jacob Zuma and had since called for his resignation. He countered them with harsh words during his last address to the ANC elective conference in December last year, accusing them of causing problems within the organization. This animosity now appears to have passed with President of the ANC Veterans League, Dr. Snooki Zigalala, saying they will support their mother body in its quest to improve the living conditions of ordinary South Africans. We had a very fruitful and constructive discussions that is between the stalwarts, our president of the country and the deputy president of the country, as to what role will the stalwarts play, especially coming towards um, the elections itself. And so the veterans and the stalwarts agreed that they'll campaign and ensure that we we build the dignity of the ANC that it had before, and then so that we restore confidence that the people had in South Africa and also in the ANC. We all agreed that uh, stalwarts belong to the ANC, and uh, we, we will all campaign to make sure that the ANC delivers on its uh, start objectives. Dr. Walise Rote, who led the stalwarts into the meeting, said they need to take advantage of the positive mood in the country to address the expectation of ordinary people. What is very, very, very important is to say that together with the president and the deputy president, we noted that there was a hope in the country, and that cannot be lost. We must take full advantage of it and do what we as ANC people have been trained to do to serve the people of this country. We are determined to do that. The other matter is that the people of this country have expectations about the future, and therefore we addressed all that as to we must come back together again and sit down and discuss what are we going to do to address those expectations. And that report by Ndebo Mokobo. South Africa's main opposition party, the DA, 
has rejected any suggestion that it opposes land reform. Last week, the party did not support the EFF's motion of expropriation of land without compensation that was passed with the support of the ruling ANC in Parliament. DA has also come under fire over its SMS campaign this past voter registration weekend, which warns members of the public that the ANC and EFF are working together to take all private land and homes. Amos Pajo reports. Party leader Musi Maimani says his party supports land redistribution and restitution, but this must be done in a just and fair manner. He says in its current form, as proposed by the EFF, expropriation without compensation is unlawful. The amendment moved in Parliament, in fact, takes away the guarantees of South Africans to own land in their own individual rights. As has been stated, it makes it clear that title deeds will become something of the past. If you do that, you will ensure that ultimately the very issue of systematic transfer of wealth is then undermined. So the motion was then supported in an amended form by the NC. And the FF's model calls for the state to be the custodian of all land, effectively the abolition of all private property. While the mention of this mention of this, mo- of this model was excluded from the final motion. It still includes references to future land tenure regime with no further clarity offered by either the NC or the EFF as to what this right will mean. The DA describes the attempt to amend the constitution as a populist effort to blame the constitution for the failure of the ANC to change land ownership patterns since 1994. Maimani says this view is supported by a number of experts, including a report by former President Halma Mutlante's high-level panel. The report says the constitution is not an impediment to land reform, neither is the requirement for compensation. It's not my business to create any form of panic among South Africans. Our business is to say we have a constitutional arrangement that protects this right. Therefore, if you want to do that, you want to go with Chief, former Chief Deputy Chief Justice Dikhang Moseneke said, who argued that the Constitution was not an impediment to expropriation of land. In the light of all of that, we will not have to wait for the ANC to clarify as its ambiguity sits. To say even if you sit with the Freedom Charter, it does not say therefore the state shall own the land. It says the people shall own the land. We will support the rights of individuals to own land in their private capacity. Maimani says the DA has been successful in its land reform strategy in the Western Cape. We'll be the only party that will stand focused on reforming ownership of urban land by making sure the beneficiaries of state subsidized housing have full ownership to titles and homes. We've already made this to about 75,000 homeowners already and are distributing more title deeds. Thousands of social housing units have been approved by the city of Cape Town which will see the spatial legacy of land dispossessed at, at, at rest. And ultimately, in national government, the DA would have the legal and constitutional mandate to do what the current government has failed to do over the 24 years. Under a DA government, we will achieve meaningful redress for the legacy of land dispossession by giving far more black South Africans the opportunities to be owners of both agricultural and urban land and settling land restitution in their individual rights. The DA has vowed to oppose the constitutional amendment with every tool at its disposal. This includes mobilizing public support and approaching the Constitutional Court for recourse. The Constitutional Review Committee of Parliament is to report back on the matter in August. I'm Amos Power in Johannesburg.
South African political parties have voiced mixed reaction to the announcement by the South African Reserve Bank that VBS Mutual Bank has been placed under curatorship. On Sunday, Governor Lesecha Khanyakho explained that the action was triggered by VBS' inability to achieve sufficient liquidity following National Treasury's instruction to municipalities that they stop investing with the bank and withdraw their funds. He said this was due to its not being registered to perform certain functions as a mutual bank. Abongile Dumako reports. The liquidity challenges emanated from the maturity of a large concentration of deposits from municipalities and was exacerbated by the termination of other sizable deposits and the inability to source sufficient funding timelessly. South African Reserve Bank Governor Lisitia Khanyako announcing that due to lack of confidence in management of VBS Mutual Bank, he has appointed a curator to take control of the bank. He says the VBS Mutual Bank's business model is risky and unsustainable. However, Khanyako has assured all depositors with the Limbobo-based bank that their funds are secure. But that didn't help as political parties expressed different views following his announcement. PAC spokesperson Kenneth Mukhate expressed his party's displeasure. The Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania is disgusted with the decision by the National Treasury as well as the Reserve Bank uh, to take the, the VBS Bank into curatorship. We expected them to at least intervene and not interfere in the matters of VBS. The Blackland First Party says it's not surprised by this decision accusing the ANC of killing black empowerment within the economic sector. Deputy President Zanele Luana says the Reserve Bank has a duty to protect and support the VBS Mutual Bank. She says they are against what she has described as a plot to destroy a black-owned company. The South African Reserve Bank in this country is being used to shut down any developments towards uh, black empowerment in this country. We also know that the South African Reserve Bank is controlled by white monopoly capital to make sure that a radical economic transformation in the society does not take place. The DA, however, has welcomed the actions by the National Treasury and the Reserve Bank to safeguard funds of the municipalities and other depositors with the VPS. The DA's Kelvin Milam says they will submit further questions to determine the true extent of municipal exposure and make sure action is being taken to avert the damage caused. The DA is satisfied with the decision to place VBS Mutual Bank under curatorship. This decision will protect and safeguard the funds of both municipalities, institutions and individual depositors. In terms of the Municipal Financial Management Act, a municipality may not open uh, an account with a mutual bank And it's for this reason that I wrote to the minister and asked for the VBS matter to be investigated. And the EFF says in a statement that putting the bank under curatorship should be a last resort, saying this should be done to assist VBS Mutual Bank grow within the sector. It says the bank is being victimized because of a 7.8 million rand loan it gave to former president Jacob Zuma. I'm Abongile Dumago in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline, Sierra Leone's Electoral Commission is to recount votes from about a further 70 polling stations amid allegations of irregularities. Exiled Congolese opposition leader Moise Katumbi has launched a campaign to be elected president in polls scheduled for December, unveiling his new Together for Change party in South Africa. And two United Nations agencies and Somalia's health ministry have launched a campaign to immunize over 4.7 million children aged from six months to ten years against measles in the drought-heat horn of African nation. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. It is 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Going back in time to today in 1888, De Beers Consolidated Mines Limited is founded to exercise control over virtually all diamond production in South Africa. The company was registered in Kimberley and was the merger of the De Beers Mining Company and Kimberley Mines under the Kimberley Central Diamond Mining Company managed by Barney Bonato. That's today in history in the year 1888. If you have a slow or irregular heart rate, then you may need a pacemaker to regulate it, but at the cost of $5,000 per operation, pacemaker surgery is out of reach for many in sub-Saharan Africa. Statistics show that every year up to 2 million people die in the developing world because they cannot afford a life-saving pacemaker operation. At the same time, less than 20 implants are made for every million people in Africa. The BBC BBC's Ferdinand Omondi went to see how one charity is getting hearts running again. In the surgery room of this hospital in Kericho, the beeping machines are monitoring a critical moment. Surgeons meticulously inserting a pacemaker into the chest of a patient. The European and American doctors have been flown in by British NGO Pace for Life and its partners. They are not just saving a life, but also training the keen Kenyan surgeons also in the theater. The pacemaker regulates slow heart rates, which in the worst of circumstances can cause death. After an hour, the surgery ends successfully and the patient is moved to the recovery room. This is patient number six who has just come out of surgery. The doctors tell me they hope to do four more by the end of sunset on day two. And as more and more people hear about the free service on offer, the waiting list is getting longer. In the wards, patients who could not afford to pay for the surgery await their turn. One gets an injection, the other a routine checkup. This project provides donated reconditioned pacemakers to those who cannot afford them. Dr. Thomas Crawford, the lead cardiologist from the University of Michigan, says the availability of free pacemakers explains why so many people are suddenly coming forward. Essentially, people in this country uh, are 100 uh, times less likely to get a pacemaker than they are, let's say, in Western Europe and the United States. And so clearly the prevalence of disease is not that much less. It's really access to the, to the therapy that's, that's more inhibited by the cost. 
simply means that I can always give her. Jane is one of the lucky patients to have had the implant. I meet her in the female ward where she's recovering while chatting with the matron on duty. Her left arm is strapped to protect the implant from sudden movement. The mother of six reveals that she has struggled with heart issues for four years. I couldn't breathe well, neither could I walk up steep slopes. I would also descend very slowly, and if I talked a lot, I would faint. I'm grateful because I now feel strong and I can talk. I can see the changes. I didn't expect a pacemaker implant because when I was told it cost $5,000, I was shocked. I decided to go back home because there was no way I could raise that kind of money. Though the project kicked off in Kericho County, the long-term plan is to expand the program to other counties within Kenya. Local governments will be expected to sustain it, but Kericho's governor, Professor Paul Chepkwony, sets a promising tone. For avoidance of doubt, this service will remain free. Our principle is this is a very expensive service. These patients cannot afford, and as part of uh, providing universal health care for the people of Kericho, and since we also don't discriminate, other Kenyans will benefit, other people from the region will benefit, we will avail it free of charge for the foreseeable future. This is an ambitious promise, but given that no African country has ever even honored a pledge they made 17 years ago to spend 15% of their budget on health, it will take much more than words to keep hearts beating. That report by the BBC's Ferdinand Omondi. More and more countries are experimenting with the idea of a sugar tax, making sweets and soft drinks a little bit more expensive, at the same time hoping to nudge the population into healthier choices. But how do people actually respond to these measures? One country that has had a sugar tax for nearly 100 years is Norway. The BBC's Hugh Pym travelled to Oslo to see what effect the sugar tax was having. Norwegians are going about their business as usual in the capital Oslo. But what's different in the early months of this year is that they're having to pay more for their chocolate and sweets. A sugar tax which Norwegians have got used to paying over many decades went up dramatically in January, more than 80%. Local people we spoke to seemed philosophical about it. I think it's good for the health, so I think it's good. There are people who are not happy with it, uh, the tax increasing, but I, I think it's good. It's a lot of other taxes that I would uh, uh, react on, but this one is okay for me. But there's a faster flow of sweets two hours drive from Oslo over the border in Sweden, where there's no sugar tax. There are vast candy shops, including one I visited. They're trying to entice Norwegian shoppers with products which are half the price. It's hard to imagine anything else quite like it. The Swedish owner says this is one of the biggest sweet shops in the world. It has 20 of them, all a short distance from the border. 95% of customers come over from Norway. Some shoppers have made long journeys to stock up on chocolate sweets and sugary drinks. Stores selling other goods nearby can also offer lower prices than back at home. Well, I'm coming uh, every once a month to buy food, so it's, uh, it's worth it. It's uh, not only because of the price, but uh, I'd like to have a trip and 
by a lot when we come here. Mats Idbrat from the company Gotterbitten, which owns the stores, says he's noticed a sales boost since the Norwegian tax went up. We're getting more customers and we also see that the existing customers that we already had is buying more, that we can also see. The sugar tax in Norway goes back to the 1920s and was introduced as a revenue-raising measure. The government believes it has helped stabilise child obesity levels for 15-year-olds over the last decade. Sweden's are higher and have risen more rapidly. The Norwegian government has made efforts to get food companies to reduce sugar content. Ursa Mikkelsen is the health minister. We managed now to stabilise the obesity of uh, children and young people. And I'm happy about that. It means that what we have done until now uh, had been functioning on the right way. What do you say to families who might drive a long way to Sweden to buy chocolate and sugar to save money? They can choose, of course, uh, to buy or to drive to Sweden or to order it via internet. If they get two kilos of uh, candies uh, every Saturday evening, uh, they should know about it. This is a risk. Sugar is not good for your health. Norwegian ministers know they need to wait a year or so to assess the impact of this year's sharp sugar tax increase. Other countries planning similar policies will watch with interest. Perhaps it'll lead to a fall in consumption, or perhaps it won't make much difference, especially to Norwegians with more of a taste for exercise than sweets and sugary drinks. That report by the BBC's Hugh Pym in Oslo. School learners are participating in science demonstrations and workshops presented by some of the country's leading scientists this week in South Africa's Eastern Cape province. Under the theme Innovation 4.0, the ongoing SciFest Africa aims to promote awareness and appreciation of science and technology in the country. Lebuani Masebe is Deputy Director for Science Promotion at the Department of Science and Technology. Southwest Africa, it's happening in Grahamstown in the Eastern Cape. And the main purpose of this is a respond to the science engagement strategy of the Department of Science and Technology, which seeks to create a society that is knowledgeable about science, uh, able to form their own opinion, and also scientifically literate society uh, at best. So that's the main key that we want to see at the end of events like SciFest Africa so that the, co- the, the society of, of South Africa uh, look up to science and technology and appreciate, acknowledge the impact and the contribution of science and technology in their daily life. Now, school learners are there, but what else is happening? The model of a science festival is when you bring together scientists uh, to meet the general public. That includes learners, where in learners they can talk face-to-face with the real scientists, those who are doing the work in the laboratory and other research and other innovation, so that they can inspire these youngsters to want to become uh, like those scientists. So we've got uh, scientists from uh, South Africa and also those that come af- uh, abroad who also do some public lectures, presentations of their researches and engaging with learners. And on top of that, you will then have the hands-on exhibits 
other exhibits are demonstrating certain principles that learners learn in the classroom. But uh, as you understand the environment in our country, not every learner has access to experiments. Not every learner uh, has access to deeper things. They just learn maybe theory. This is the opportunity where they do hands-on and they engage uh, in this science so that they can be attracted and start choosing mathematics and science as gateway subjects. How do we then ensure that we take it beyond spaces like SciFest Africa to make sure that um, learners properly engage in science and technologies beyond these programs, beyond reading about it in a book and possibly cramming just for exams? As a department, as I indicated earlier about the science engagement strategy, we are now working on the implementation plan which then go beyond uh, events like SciFest. We've got other 12 uh, science festivals that happen throughout the year in the country, in other parts of the country, which continue to try and reach out to these learners. But apart from that, we've got a range of programs from the department, which we do through science centers that are across the country, and other events like your National Science Week, which is a flagship, project of the department and continue supporting learners and teachers on the extracurricular activities. You will remember that uh, as we go towards end of the year, we, we start talking about the Expo for Young Scientists. So yes. We've got a number of uh, programs where others are science olympiads, science competitions uh, in different fields of science wherein these learners are always engaged throughout the year to and these programs that i'm referring to they come to complement what they are learning in the class and give these learners skills like uh, being part of a team uh, presentation skills and problem solving skills and that's Libuani Masebe, Deputy Director for Science Promotion at the Department of Science and Technology in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabisolo Hoko. Good morning. My name is Toby Solohoko for Channel Africa. The National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, NUMSA, argues that electricity from renewable sources costs much more than from coal-fired plants and will therefore disadvantage the poor. The union won an urgent court interdate last night to stop power utility ESCOM and the government from signing agreements with independent power producers or IPPs which would move South Africa's energy mix towards a greater use of renewables. The case will be back in court in two weeks' time. NUMSA spokesperson Palamila Flubimachola says apart from costing about 30,000 jobs at coal mines, the move towards renewable energy would hurt poorer people. The IPP rollout will raise the cost of electricity dramatically because IPPs cost much more than coal-fired electricity. Clearly, the ANC government wants to make the working class and the poor suffer even more than they do now. Electricity prices will skyrocket because of the IPP rollout, while at the same time, VAT and fuel price are going up. Workers are also being paid slave wages of 20 rand per hour and less. 
The Public Servants Association of South Africa has come out against the Public Investment Corporation for its shareholding into ailing VBS Mutual Bank. The South African Reserve Bank placed the lenders under curatorship after it failed to repay money owed to municipalities. Meanwhile, business support groups say the move is a blow for black business. Abongile Tumago reports. In a statement, PAC spokesperson Kenneth Mukhatle says they are disgusted by the Reserve Bank's decision as it oppresses an African-owned bank. The BLF says it's not surprised by this decision, accusing the ANC of killing black empowerment within the economic sector. And the DA's Kevin Milam says they support this action taken by Treasury and the Reserve Bank to safeguard the funds of municipalities and other depositors within VBS. And the EFF says putting the bank under curatorship should be a last resort. It says the bank is being victimized because of a 7.8 million rand loan it gave to former president Jacob Zuma. Abongile Dumago, SABC News, Johannesburg. Zimbabwe's state-owned electricity distributor has given businesses, including mines and large-scale farms, six months to clear the bills or risk being cut off and face litigation. The Zimbabwe Electricity Transmission and Distribution Company is owed more than one billion U.S. dollars by electricity users, including domestic households, farmers, industries, and mining companies. ZETDC says in a public notice that businesses had six months to clear their bills because it required the money to pay for electricity imports to supplement local generation. The vice president of the European Commission has downplayed U.S. President Donald Trump's decision to impose tariffs on steel and aluminium imports. Franz Timmerman said Trump had said many things that did not materialize. The BBC's Andrew Walker has more. The new tariffs on steel and aluminium announced by President Trump to protect national security are due to come into force next week. One of the EU's most senior officials, Franz Timmermans, rejected the idea that European steel is a threat to the US and said the bloc was prepared to take countermeasures. Earlier, one of his colleagues, the Trade Commissioner, Cecilia Malmström, said the EU would stand up to bullies. She did not name the US or President Trump, though it's likely that it was his tariff measures that she had in mind. The US dollar trades at 11.82 to the South African rand. It's at 9.41 in Botswana and at 9.64 in Zambia. It's also trading at 72 pence to the British pound, 81 cents to the euro. Gold on $1,318, platinum $960 an ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $64.67 a barrel. Channel Africa. As both updates up next, with Figile Lingwati, Figile Rabada. I see a, you know, he's very young, and there's a lot of arrogance that seems to be coming to the fore. Yeah, he well, wears his heart on his sleeve, and that's very dangerous. He, he's, he's trying to show the Australians. I think they're provoking him, and they see that he's very, very, very sensitive. And now he he's retaliates. So now he, yeah, he's falling into their trap, and they, they know what they do. They don't want him to play, and he doesn't see that now. But at least something is happening to him. He realized that he's letting down the team, and also that uh, he's also losing to become the best cricketer ever.
So I think you will learn from this. Let's hope so. We've seen many uh, careers being, um, uh, um, you know, uh, yeah, they've been curtailed the in, yes, in an early at a very stage. early stage, whether yeah. it's uh, cricket, in rugby, and football, across all sporting yeah. fields. Sport, sport, you, you you should have a lot of patience, and you should like keep it to yourself. You look at Messi; has he been he's been kicked since he was 16 years old. He never retaliates. He never says anything. He just continues take take playing football and scoring goals. So he'll keep his form for a long time. So I think Rabada, some people should speak to him. Mm-hmm. Give us an update. We begin with football news in this hour. The South African Football Association, SAFA, will today name the Bafana Bafana squad to compete in an upcoming Four Nations tournament. And the event, which also features hosts Zambia, Angola and Zimbabwe, will run from the 18th to the 27th of March. Head coach Shot Baxter will use the competition as preparation for the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers, which resume in September. And in local football news, South Africa's Eastern KB's team manager, Simpio Bugani, says they are in Pretoria to put up a fight against Mamelodi Sundowns, whom they meet in tonight's Nordbank Cup last 16 encounter at Loftus Festival Stadium. I can say to, to we're not proving a point. He said that that they were going there to fight. We 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 know that it's gonna be eleven because eleven um and we won't go down without the fight. That that's one thing that we're promising. So we're not we're not sharing the, the brand of of the as, as everyone everyone knows that even last season we played against Paris and not 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 all of them, all our supporters or people or were were expecting such a performance against Paris from ECP. So we're not going, we're not saying we're going there to prove to anyone that we can match, but we're gonna match them. And on to Olympic news, and uh, that there will be incentives at the Games with gold medalist winners and uh, receiving $4,200, silver medalist $2,100, with bronze medalist will receive $1,200. That is the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee, SASCO President Guillaume Sem, expecting the Team South Africa to finish in the top five at the upcoming Commonwealth Games in the Gold Coast, Australia, next month. We have really have to make sure that we we put in the money so that we don't look as if we're coming from some backward country you know so for me it was it was important that we fight hard to make sure that we get this kind of uh, assistance but as we look at it now it's more of a okay i come in with so much and you come in with so much and that's what we have well the, all the money that we've got in our kitty so it's not all from uh, uh lotteries no no it's the money that we have at Sasko. Um, we're not bankrupt yet. <laughs> no, no. And finally, world number one Roger Federer stepped up his bid for a sixth Indian Wales Masters title with a 6-2-6-1 demolition of Filipe Krajinovic. A 36-year-old Marvel continues to defy the aging process as he needed just 58 minutes to overpower the Serb with a brilliant display of Swiss timing. Fedra, who is the defending champion and trying to win a record sixth title in the California desert, was on the center stadium for the third day in a row. His opening match on Saturday night against Federico Del Bonis carried over into Sunday afternoon after heavy rains forced a postponement of several night matches. Federer has already won two titles in 2018, claiming his 20th Grand Slam crown by winning the Australian Open in January. The other victory came in Rotterdam. In the next round, he faces Jeremy Chardy, who beat fellow Frenchman Adriana Marino. 
0614-7546-61. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sahara, South Africa to launch a bid for a seat in the UN Security Council and UN Commission on Women's Status kicks off its annual session. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramakaza and Tutongobeni, technical producer Revelina Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info@channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at rise-shine-africa or at channelafrica1 or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327. I'm taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is when days are dark, friends are few. A song from Sipo Kumete. <laughs> 